from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. And welcome, welcome, welcome to everyone checking in from the Badass Counseling show audiences around the world listeners around the world it's great heavy here i have no idea what the hell just came out of my mouth that was just gobbledygook i apologize for the nonsense rob make some sense of my nonsense i uh, have very little trouble making sense of what you do sven not to worry well you're, you're very good. gracious you're full of shit but you're very gracious all right all right I, you got I'm, me i'm, I'm teasing on, I'm that, te- on that regard i went to the gym all filled with confidence yesterday to go see my trainer and then i was having a lot of trouble with my core i thought something's wrong with my core beliefs Ah, that's it. Yeah, that was that's it. it. It's yeah. affecting your physical core. That must yeah. be it. Yeah. Well, I want to welcome everyone here on behalf of Rob uh, next to me and KC over in the booth. We are live on uh, TikTok. We are live on Facebook. We are live on YouTube right now. I am taking questions from listeners around the world. We have people checking in from Mission, Texas, from literally, we have, I think, our first listener ever, at least the first one who's spoken up, from Zimbabwe. We have South Africa. Uh, we always have a contingent down in Australia and New Zealand. They're always such fine people. And I've got my Irish folks in. Love having the Irish and the folks in the UK. It's great. Um, one or two Minnesotans to pepper it up. And the LSU folk down in Louisiana are always checking in, especially after last night. Both my kids went to LSU. little plug for the Tigers. All right. So fine people. Let's go ahead and dive right in. We are taping a live episode of the Badass Counseling Show podcast, which posts new episodes on Thursdays and on Sundays. And uh, let's get started. Here we go. Do you believe a marriage can survive multiple affairs with the same woman? Uh, Do I believe, that's the question you're asking, do I believe a marriage can survive multiple affairs with the same woman? I think if your goal, I'm going to assume that you are the one who has cheated on. Now, I'm I'm just going to assume that because I see in the picture next to your question, you have a female face. So I'm just assuming you are the one that was cheated on. Although you could have been the one having the affair with the multiple women, I'm going to assume it was your husband. All right. That being said, do I believe it can survive? Oh, sure. Sure. You can just stay in it and he'll keep cheating. And yeah, the marriage will survive. Is the goal though to have the marriage survive? Or is the goal for you to be fucking happy? and feel fulfilled, and feel respected, and feel loved. Because if the goal is that, this marriage ever providing that, it's possible, but it's such an extraordinary long shot. Why? Not just because your husband breached the contract once, but that your husband breached the contract again. The breach of the contract the first time was a fuck you, doing it again and again. It's just like, He has no respect for you. Despite the bullshit coming out of his mouth, every time he apologizes or every time you catch him and he swears he's going to change and he never changes, it's just, you might as well just see his, you ever ever seen in the movies where, you know, they'll show like one character talking and then we're, we're we're in the head of the person listening and you see the other person talking, but the, the thought in my head is just, Blah, blah, blah. You know, like the voice on uh, Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. But all you hear the person saying is, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Doesn't matter what's coming out of your husband's mouth because all you should really be hearing in your head from him is, fuck you. Because that's what he's saying. Every time he cheats, he's saying, fuck you. All right. It's just, it's just, he clearly doesn't care. 
about your feelings, but he wants to keep you around. Well, why would he want to keep you around? Because if you leave, he loses his source of love. He loses, so he's getting love from you and the woman he's cheating from. So two women are basically saying, I'm okay being loved only half. The max amount that he could possibly give you is half because he's giving half his love to this other person, right? At least. So you have two women who are content each getting only half love and he gets double the love. You ask me the question, do I believe a marriage can survive? Sure, if your goal is to have the marriage survive, if that is your goal, you can definitely, your marriage can definitely survive. Downside is you'll be fucking miserable. You wouldn't even be asking the question about the marriage unless you're already fucking miserable. And the truth is, if we're really going deep on this fucking question, the mere fact that he has had even one affair, but multiple affairs on you and you keep taking him back says that there is some immense fear inside of you. You are immensely afraid of standing up to him. You are immensely afraid of saying no. You are immensely afraid of walking away. Why? Because he's wounded you so fucking deeply and yet you keep taking him back. And that's a, that is absolutely a fear response. You are terrified, probably terrified of being alone, terrified of breaking it off, terrified. Maybe you have a, a parent who says you can't ever end your marriage. Do you know how many clients I've had over the years who are maybe in abusive relationships or cheating relationships or just really bad relationships, but they don't feel comfortable leaving because they feel they'll be antagonized by one of their own parents. Well, maybe it's religion, maybe it's just parents' values or they've they, this adult has been critiqued by that parent their whole life and they're terrified to walk away. So it may be a parent criticism, but you have some giant fear that keeps you eating shit at the hands of this man. And until you name that fear and begin to flush that out of you and sort it out and flush and flush and flush the pain and the fears, until you get all that shit out of you, it's going to continue to dominate your decision-making and you're going to continue to be miserable. Let's be honest, you are miserable, obviously. You wouldn't be even posting the question, multiple affairs. You wouldn't even be posting that question unless you're fucking miserable, right? It wouldn't be a big deal. Hey, okay, no big deal. You wouldn't put the question up on a public venue. No, you're miserable and it's sucking the life out of you. And the truth is, until you do that healing work inside of you, nothing's going to fucking change. You're going to keep eating shit. And the answer is inside of you. It's not what happens with your marriage. But yes, if your goal is to save the marriage, sure, you can save the marriage, but you're going to be fucking miserable. Can, but what, So what you're really asking is, can I have the marriage and have it be fulfilling for me? Sure, but that would require a massive amount of change on the part of your husband. But that would have to be preceded by a massive amount of change on your part, because the only way he's going to change is if there's a pain point. If you make him, if you force him, if you basically say, if you don't change, I'm leaving, or if you don't change, X, Y, and Z. But there's no consequence for his actions. He keeps getting you back. Why would he stop cheating? He doesn't have to. You keep taking him back. So there's no incentive. And until you have the courage inside of yourself to create incentive, to create a pain point, until you uh, have the willingness to walk away and follow through, knowing that he might not change and that you actually will have to follow through and, and go out and strike out on your own, until you're willing to do that, he's not going to fucking change. So you're going to continue to be miserable in this marriage. All right, next question. How do you get over a man who left you is the next question. And the answer is simply this. The way you get over any loss, which is really what makes getting over loss hard is that I had the mere fact that we have to get over something says that there's something I want, but I can't have anymore. So when my mother died in uh, early December of 2021, she was 93. We knew she was going to pass, but there's part of me that still wishes she were here. When my father died in 2020 at the age of 92, it was lost. And, and so how do I get over that longing? How do I get over that missing? 
you know, you're asking, how do I get over a man that left you? Or how do you get over when someone dies? Or how do you get over losing your job that you loved so much? How do you get over it? And the way you get over it, and this is going to sound, well, counterintuitive, or in layman's terms, it's just going to sound fucking stupid. And the way you get over someone is by not trying to get over them. The way you get over them is not to power through and say, oh, I just got to let go and you shove that shit down and I'm just going to move on. That never works. Long-term, that never works because those feelings will come up. They will fucking haunt you. They will come back. You can't just stuff feelings down. The way you get over that person is to allow all of those feelings up. Allow all of those feelings to come out. You start fucking journaling. You get a pad, a pen, and a paper or on your computer and you just start journaling. You flush out all the feelings. One of the simplest tools, even if you're not a journaler, one of the simplest tools that you can use is get a pad, a pen, and a paper and write a letter to the person that you do not send. So for instance, I've written letters to my dead mother. I've written letters in the past to women who have left me. Or when I get divorced a woman, I wrote letters to her that I did not send. Why? Letters are easy. Journaling for some people is, is hard. I don't know what to say and my grammar sucks or whatever. So for some people, journaling out their feelings, how am I feeling today? What's really going on inside of me? Why am I feeling this? What triggered this day? Things like that are harder for some people. But a letter, anybody can write a fucking letter, right? And you just flush it out. Dear Susie, I miss you so much, but you fucking bitch, why did you leave me? I'm so mad, blah, 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 fuck you. And God, you were so beautiful. And I, I'm sickened by the thought of another man getting to be with you. And oh, I just think of you laughing with another man. It makes me so sad. And God, I'm so pissed that you, Flush it all out. Flush everything out. And the more you flush, and the more you flush, and the more you flush, it disappears. That's it. The solution to getting over anyone, the solution to coming out of a state of pain over any sort of loss, a career, a lover, a child, a parent, a friend, is flushing it out. All right, next question. What are your thoughts on EMDR therapy? Well, as you all know, I am not a psychologist. This is a good opportunity to remind everyone I am not a mental health professional. I'm a former clergyman who has had a soul counseling practice for 30 years. Most of the last nine, my practice has been in Manhattan, New York City. I specialize in going deep into people, down into their core shit, the shit they can't even see. They may be experiencing depression or sadness or anxiety or loss, but there are always deeper problems that they can't see. I'm not a psychologist, so when it comes to EMDR therapy, my comment is basically no comment. I've heard positive, I've heard negative, I know nothing about it. Um, that's not my field of what I do. So just putting that out there. Next question. Oh, this is a great question. Oh, I love this one. And any parent can understand the significance of this one, even if you're not in a bad relationship. Listen to this one. How do you get up the courage to leave when there are small children involved? That is a great question because the fear in ending any relationship is, you know, how will I feel? How will the other person feel? I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to look like the bad guy. How will I be when I'm alone? I'm terrified to be alone. All those feelings. But then you add into the equation of, well, we have children together and, and that it's going to impact the children. And what you're left with is this question of how fucking selfish am I that I'm going to inflict this pain on my children? It's one thing to inflict it on my spouse. They're a fucking adult. She'll be fine, you know, if it's a guy or whatever. They'll be fine, okay? But to inflict it on children, it doesn't seem fair. It seems so selfish that I would put my needs above the needs of the children. 
And sort of implicit in that question is that the needs of the children are that the two parents stick together, which isn't necessarily true. It isn't the needs of the children that two parents stick together if the relationship has gone foul, okay? That's not a need of the children. What the need, children need is to be surrounded by love and so on and so forth. But it's not even just uh, that the child's need is greater. The, the child's need for the parents together is greater. Just the mere thought that it's gonna hurt my children if I end this relationship. That's hard to swallow. It's hard when you're a parent to know that I am making a decision that I know is going to adversely, at least in the short term, adversely affect my children. That's an extraordinarily difficult decision to make. And the truth is, yes, it's going to hurt your children. It's basically impossible to get a divorce without it hurting the children, regardless of the children's age. And what's fascinating though, in my, I've had been through two divorces and uh, children in the first divorce who are now adults and grown and so forth and uh, lovely people. They always were, of course. One of the things that I've learned and absolutely believe in and this, a lot of people disagree with me on this. Well, some people disagree. Doing it younger, when the children are surrounded by love, when the children are surrounded by friends, family, schoolmates, teachers that care about them, in that, in, in that culture of love and caring, doing it younger is better than older. I absolutely believe that. Waiting till your kid goes off to the college before you divorce your fucking spouse is the worst fucking idea. You want to know why? Because your kid now is 18 or your kid now is 19 or 20 and is at college off at, you know, knucklehead school, surrounded by knuckleheads and has friends, sure. But now you're going to drop this bomb on them that the two people your kid loves the most in the entire world are now leaving each other. And who's your uh, child surrounded by? Knuckleheads, right? They're friends, college friends, good kids all, I'm sure, but what the hell do they know? How the hell are they gonna be able to help your child through the single most traumatic event of their life in all likelihood? No, they're not, they're ill-equipped. Now, will they have a psychologist or a therapist at, your, at the school? Sure, sure. But can you see the value of doing it sooner when the child is surrounded by grandma, grandpa, aunts, uncle, school, friends, family, mother, dad, whatever? Do you see the value that when it's done earlier, they're surrounded by love to sort them through it, to keep their life moving forward while they're allowed to process all of that pain, first of all. Second of all, by doing it earlier, it gives them greater opportunity to normalize it and to adjust while still in that safe setting. But you do it when the kid is 18 or worse even, do it when the kid is 28. The kid has normalized mom and dad being together. I had a client tell me recently, her parents dropped a bomb on her that they were getting a divorce one month before her wedding. She was 28. How fucking miserable do you think her wedding was for her? And not just because, oh, mom and dad were at each other's throats. From what she said, they were cordial, okay? No, she was fucking miserable because her parents divorced. She said, Sven, that was, that was like a decade ago. And it still haunts me. So the notion of waiting till the kids are older, bad fucking idea in most cases. Are there exceptions? Sure. But generally when the child is young, why? Because then you can still walk them through it. You can still love on them. But if, you're, if you live in Boston and your kid is going to school in San Diego or your kid got their first job in, you know, Shipshawana, Indiana, how are you going to help them? 
And so now they're out in the world by themselves struggling with the most traumatic, or certainly one of the most traumatic events of their life. So your original question was, how do you get up the courage to leave when there are small children involved? A, you flush out all your own fears. You have to address your own fears. Get those out because you'll see clearer. B, you know that it's better uh, when young than older, generally speaking. C, you commit to getting your children therapy, an adult that they can talk their problems out with that is not a parent because they may have feelings about you that they don't want to share or feelings about dad. Getting them uh, that counseling. Um, and how do you get up the courage? At some point, ultimately, the only thing that drives... <laughs> The primary thing that drives change in life is pain. When your pain is bad enough, you'll have the courage because you'll be like, I have to do this. And you'll navigate it and you'll do fine. And the truth is your children will adjust and they'll adjust well if you commit to giving them the counseling and the love that they need. All right, next question. How do I trust my intuition when I spent 28 years with a narcissist and didn't know it? Uh, Laura Lee, in all likelihood, if you spent 28 years with a narcissist, it's not even a matter of trusting in your own intuition. In all likelihood, you probably can barely even hear it. When we're with someone who is a narcissist, or you guys know my term, my term is an extreme taker. When you're with someone who's taking and taking and taking and taking, you lose your voice, you lose your intuition, you lose your sense of self. It gets overridden by this pounding, pounding, pounding of their voice, their expectations, their wants, their needs, their feelings. And what's fascinating though is, Almost invariably, that happened long before you met your narcissist. It's very likely, if we were to dig, that goes way back to childhood that you lost your voice. But that aside, let's I'll take the I'll play the ball where it lays. And the, it says, I spent 28 years with this narcissist. How do I trust my intuition now? It's not about trusting your own, own intuition per se. It's about being able to hear it. And the reason you can't hear it is because that other voice is still in there. The other voices, A, your 28-year narcissist partner, but likely also the voice of mom and or dad or whomever raised you. So that means in order to be able to hear it, I need to be able to get all the other voices out. Well, how do you do that? You have to get those voices out. And, and you guys have heard me say it a million times, but journaling and doing the inner work, which is why I recommend my book, the, There's a Hole in My Love Cup, because it takes you inside to begin to unpack and pull out and pull out and pull out and flush out all of the crud that's inside of you that causes you to, that's packed on top of it, your voice, that causes you to not be able to hear your own voice. So the key is not just trusting your own intuition, but it's beginning to hear it. And the only way you can hear it is get that crud out first. And then you trust it, the way you start to trust it is in small doses. One little step, one baby step, trust a little more. Another baby step, then trust a little more. And then another baby step and trust a little more. And the truth is you're gonna fall down. You're gonna feel like you've made mistakes. You're gonna feel like, oh, that one didn't work out. And sometimes that will cause us to recede and not want to trust our own voice. But you have to keep trusting it because in, in the end, it's better to fail on your own voice than to succeed, succeed on someone else's. Why? Because you're finally living authentically. So it's a twofold answer. One, you have to get all the voices out that are causing you to distrust your own voice. It's not that you need to trust your own voice more. It's you need to pull out the voices that are causing, driving the distrust, and then just take it in baby steps. And before you know it, you'll be flying right along. All right, now let's take a quick break. I'll be right back with more Badass Counseling. My wife pushed me to watch this guy's TikTok videos. So I finally caved in and holy crap, blew me away. I started watching more, and every time he opens his mouth, I get blown away in a whole new way. 
So I finally bought his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. To say I got an ass kicking is an understatement. Much needed. It was like having my own personal tough therapist who just gets it. So go do yourself a favor. Get There's a Hole in My Love Cup. It's powerful stuff. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Yes, we are back. Rob has just cued me in from the commercial, as you know, and we're all set. We're in the middle of a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show podcast. It's great to have everyone checking in and getting a whole field of questions here. I love it. Next one is this. Any advice on how to deal with extreme loneliness? Oh, yeah, for sure. You, if somebody gave you an ice cream cone and you really liked ice cream and it was Rocky Road and your favorite is Rocky Road and it was just the right size, you wouldn't say, how do I deal with eating a Rocky Road ice cream cone that's just the right size and I'm so hungry for right now? There's nothing to deal with. I enjoy it. I'm just going to eat it. We only have to deal with things that are unenjoyable, unpleasant, painful. So the mere fact that you're having to deal with your extreme loneliness indicates you don't like it. And the mere fact that it, you use the word extreme says you really don't like it. All right, so you're in a situation that you really don't like. My first question would be, what do you think is at the root of your extreme loneliness? Why are you feeling so alone or why are you so alone? Now, in all likelihood, either A, you've been ostracized and, and you're feeling alone or, uh, or you've made decisions to choose to be alone. Okay. Now, it could be that you're living out because of your work, you live out in some remote part of the world. That's a lower percentage shot. It's possible, but it's a lower percentage. But let's go with the notion that possibly you made a sequence of decisions that have led you to be more alone or feel more alone, okay? Or, well, actually that's not true because it's possible that you have plenty of people around you, yet inside you feel loneliness. So there are any number of uh, sequences or options that could cause you to feel extreme loneliness, Right? Even if you're surrounded by people, plenty of people still feel lonely inside. But you're asking the question, you're not really asking where does it come from, you're asking the question, how do I deal with it? As with all things painful, you flush them out and you keep flushing. People think, well, what's the point in even trying? It's not gonna go away. How the fuck do you know? You haven't done it. And you keep doing it. Not just a little bit, I'm gonna try it and see how it goes. It's like That's like saying, well, I'm gonna try this diet for a week and if I don't lose 25 pounds, fuck it right? Or I'm going to go to the gym and you know what? If I don't see my biceps within two weeks, I'm out of here. This, this is stupid. Working out doesn't work. Well, come on. We all know it works. We all know that good things take time. My 93-year-old mother always used to say before she passed away at 93, all her years, Sven, good things take time. Good things take time. And it's like, no, no, mom. Wrong answer, bad answer. Stop. I don't want to hear that. Don't, don't tell me that. I want it now. I want it now. Well, it's the same way with healing, fine people. It takes time. It takes work. We had a guest on the show. We taped an episode of our counseling show earlier today. We had uh, Jess in from New Zealand, a lovely guest. And that, uh, that episode will be going up in the next week or two here in Jess was talking about, she was asking me, Sven, will this ever heal this, this frustration will it, or this uh, sense of uh, despondency and depression? Will it ever go away? 
And the answer is, yeah, if you do the work. But here's the critical piece. Until the pain is out of you, people, it is still in you. Until it is out of you, it is still in you. And you have to keep flushing and keep flushing and keep flushing. I've had clients come to me who have lost children. I've worked with many, many people over the last 30 years who have lost a child to death, to addiction, to mental illness, to uh, abduction, all sorts of really, there are many ways to lose a child. And each with its own horrors. And they come to me very often, whether it's immediately, more often than not, it's a couple years later, five years later, seven years later, and they're tired of the pain. They're tired of the sadness. And they say, Sven, how do I get over this? I, I want to be happy again, and I feel guilty even saying those words and all the things that go along with it. But very often, there's a desire to either move through, not necessarily uh, get past or let go of the child. or It's not that. It's just this hurts so much. Make the hurt stop. And it requires the work. And they do the work. And what they discover is that the pain does stop. It does. Even in that worst case scenario. I don't think any of us could come up with a, maybe somebody could, but I mean, that's about as bad as it gets, right? Losing your own child and they heal. So even in that extreme scenario, people who have suffered abuse as children or sexual or physical abuse as children, that when they commit to doing the work, it is possible to heal. It is possible to come out of the depression, but you have to keep doing the work. Good things take time. You have to commit to the work of flushing out the pain, flushing out the pain, flushing out the fears, and so forth. That's how you deal with extreme loneliness. You flush it out just like any other pain, and you keep flushing, and you don't stop, and healing will come. Next question. Now, this is a fun one uh, for me, not for the person asking it, but I like the question. How can I get my rebellious teenager to open up to me? I try and it's not good enough for her. All right, honest question, fair question. I think every parent on earth has gone through this at one point or another, the rebellious teenager. I want them to open up to me. One, and, and I'm not being facetious when I ask this, but who gives a shit? If they don't wanna open up, why is that bad? Okay, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm asking an honest question. Why is that bad? If the child wants to pull back, why is that bad? If the child, because there is some normalcy to that, that when the child moves into puberty, when they move into those teen years, there is a desire to begin to identify myself in, in how I'm different from this family of origin. And you begin to identify yourself with and cleave to friends more and get more of your identity there and some of your love needs met there. Well, that's fucking hard if you're a parent. That's fucking hard. And I have two kids, 31 and 28, okay? And it's fucking hard when your child pulls away or it doesn't share everything with you, especially if you've had that intimate bond with your child for so many years, right? They're 12, they're 14 now. And for 12 or 14 years, we've been so tight and they shared everything. And it was like, oh, you know, it was so tight. I missed that connection. Yeah, exactly. But the problem is, is that the child doesn't exist to meet your needs. The child does not exist to pour love into your love cup. You exist to pour love into the child's love cup. Well, how can I pour love in if they don't want to connect? You just be there. Confirming the love and trusting that they're just going through what they need to go through. Okay, and you're there. And when they're ready, they'll come around. 
when they need you, when they want to be with you, they will come to you. And I guarantee they still will, unless you are forcing your will constantly down the throat of your child to the point where they're pulling back just to get some safety, just to be able to fucking breathe. Unless you're ramming your shit down your child's throat, they'll come. Why? Because part of life is we all go through times where we're scared, where we're alone, where we don't know what to do. I mean, we do it as adults. You do it doubly so as a kid. And they're going to come. Where are they going to come to? They're going to go for, for safety and comfort where they feel safe and comfortable. But if you're always antagonizing, you got to open up, you got to open up, or why aren't you connecting or you just or criticizing their life? And I'm not saying you're doing the criticism part, but clearly you're trying to get them to open up. You're trying to force their will, trying to get them to act in a way that you want them to act. And by doing that, by trying to get someone to act the way I want them to act, I'm conveying the message to them. I don't like the way you're acting. You should do what I say. So I'm fundamentally insulting them. You should act the way I say you should act. Well, that's an insult. I don't like the way you're acting, right? Well, it's like, well, fuck you, old man. Fuck you, old woman. Act however I want to fucking act. I mean, unless the person's being actually hurtful to you, that's not okay, right? Um, and so you ask the question, how do I get my rebellious teenager to open up to me? You don't say why they're rebellious. I'm assuming you're linking them not opening up to you to them rebelling. You say, I try and it's not good enough for her. So stop trying. Let it go, all right? Let it go. But what you need to really look at, and this may not be applicable in this case, but what you really need to look at is what's going on inside of me? What is it that I'm feeling? Is this really about your daughter and what's in the best interest of your daughter? Or is this that I'm feeling a sense of loss, that I've lost my friend, I've lost the relationship I had with my child? Well, guess what? Relationships morph, especially child-adult relationships right? And if you're trying to keep it, and I, I know plenty of parents who do and plenty, kids, adult kids of plenty of parents who did and still do. If you're trying to keep it, what that relationship was from zero to 10, you're going to choke the fuck out of your kid, right? I know people in adulthood in their forties who say, you know, my mom is, or my dad is, you know, still wanting that relationship we had when I was 12. It's like fucking hell. I'm an old man. I'm 42, Sven. I'm inclined to think that something's going on here inside of you that it's possible that this is more about you than it is about your son or daughter. Being rebellious in teen years is pretty normal. What is it about it? The question you need to be asking yourself, and I'm not antagonizing you for, for that, all right? We've all been through that. Anybody who's had a teen has been through that. What I'm asking you is, in your own self-work, in your own journaling, you need to be asking yourself the question, what is really going on inside of me? What is it about this that hurts so much? Is it that I'm I'm wanting this relationship because it's genuinely what, or that connection, that closer relationship and them opening up to me because it's genuinely about the best interest of the kid? Or is it that it's really about me and I miss that relationship we used to have and I miss it? And so you're grieving. I'm willing to bet it's the latter, that you miss it, that you don't have that relationship. It will return again someday as long as you're not just the critical person or the pushing person or you should, you should, you should. The day will come. Maybe it'll be when they're 25. Maybe it'll be when they're 35. The day will come again. And there will be moments between now and then where they come to you and you'll have glimmers of that. You'll have moments where they come to you for counsel, for love, for kindness. And you're gonna want that all the time because when your kid is eight years old, you pretty much get that all the time. Oh, mom, hugs. Oh, dad, oh, I love you. You're great. Oh, let's play, let's play, right? But the kid doesn't exist to be your friend. Your child does not exist to be your friend. Your child does not exist to give you love, to pour love into your love cup. And that's a bitter fucking pill to swallow if you're a parent. They don't exist to meet your needs. 
You exist to meet their needs. And a child needing space is a child who needs space. I said we taped an episode of the show earlier today of the counseling uh, episode, and those are the ones that air on Thursdays. And this particular guest, uh, Faith, was talking about how her son is sort of pulled away from her. And her son, she fears, you know, he has no voice. He's lost his voice, so to speak. And she realizes it's because she had no voice herself. And she realizes that her son losing her voice, his voice, so to speak, his intuition, his own sense of self, was because they were so critical of him growing up and it probably didn't feel safe. And he was told what he should do and shouldn't do and expectations and all this and that. She feels bad because he's 23 now and he's lost his voice. Yeah. And so part of finding your own voice, knowing your own voice, hearing your own intuition, having a sense of self is creating this space in life from all those voices, whether it's peers or parents, friends, society, creating distance physical distance or distance in your own head so you can begin to hear your own voice, make your own mistakes, try your own challenges, strike out in your directions and go give things a try. And so part of the rebellious teenager thing is that child hearing, beginning to hear its own voice and the best thing you can do, assuming it's not being hurtful to other people, you know, they're harmful, uh, is give them the room to begin to hear their own voice and encourage that and simultaneously work on your own feelings and what's really going on inside of you. All right. Deirdre makes the comment, the hardest thing is mourning the loss of a relationship with a grown child who has decided to cut you out. And I will put a big fat exclamation point on the end of that one, Deirdre. It is hard. It's extraordinarily hard. When you feel like you've done so much and when you feel like you just want to love on the kid and you want that relationship and they cut you out, it's extraordinarily hard. And yet, if we're really being honest, it's also an opportunity for soul searching soul searching. And in my own work on myself, in your own self-care, it's to begin to answer the questions. The ultimate question really is, what have I done? If I were being totally honest, even if it's just in the, in the safety, the privacy of me and my own journal or my own journal and me, what have I done to hurt my child? If I'm being really honest, how have I robbed their voice of them? How have I caused them to think either A, they're unwanted and or unwantable, B, that they're not good enough or they're no good. Three, that who they really are doesn't matter. Their authentic self. How have I conveyed those messages? What have I done? In Because those are the real powerful messages in life. What have I done? And to begin to do your own soul searching and to begin to reflect and to allow yourself to feel the guilt. If you don't feel guilt in your parenting, you're not self-reflecting. Fact. One of the things people hear me say all the time is the mark of good parenting is guilt. One of the marks. Why? Because anyone who feels guilt about their parenting is someone who is reflecting on their parenting. They're actually thinking about it. And if you're thinking about your parenting, you are a step ahead of so many people because so many parents can't bear to look at their parenting and the negative effects or the mistakes they've made. And I got news for you, sugar tits, and I'm saying sugar tits Rob, sugar tits everybody. I am not being sexist here. Okay. <laughs> we all make mistakes. We all cause pain in life, but especially in parenting. Perfect parenting doesn't exist. Parenting that doesn't inflict pain and sadness on a child doesn't exist. So if you are feeling guilt, if you are feeling guilt, it's because you're reflecting. You're beginning to look at, or you have been looking at, your parenting and you're assessing it. And that's good because that means there's room to grow. There's an opportunity to, to correct those mistakes, to atone, right? Now, carrying guilt forever, no. 
My own mother said, she told me when she was in her 70s, Sven, it's only been recently that I've forgiven myself for the guilt in parenting you six kids. And she says, but I wish I would have forgiven myself sooner. So that guilt, it's allowing yourself to feel the guilt. It's allowing yourself to admit and to really look at the pain you might have caused a child. And that's going to impact you. That's going to impact if you have any interaction with a child in the future, it's going to impact that. It's going to impact everything. But the healing for you starts with healing you. The healing of the potential healing of a relationship won't heal by you staying the same. It'll it'll change. If it has hope of changing the future, it'll only change by you having the courage to change you. And that happens by looking at what you've done and what you haven't done. And the child will sense that difference and you will act differently and you will seek to atone, even if there's no hope of forgiveness, because then it's about the child, the adult child. And that's when things have the opportunity to change. But if your child, your adult child at some point comes back to you and you haven't changed, what do you think the odds are they're gonna wanna have a few relationship with you in the future if you haven't changed? All right, next question. Right in line with that, but somewhat different. But, but Sven, how do you differentiate between accepting your kids as they are and telling them what is right? I don't quite know what that means. So I'm gonna start a little bit on the far end and say, I guarantee in all likelihood, uh, barring some form of mental illness, which I, you know, obviously there's room for that, uh, your child knows what murder is, right? Knows what robbing a bank is and that it's illegal. Okay, so I'm gonna assume when you say, you know, how do you differentiate between accepting your kids as they are and telling them what is right? I'm assuming your children really at any age from very young know what's wrong in terms of illegal. So when you say telling them what is right, I would have to ask further, what exactly do you mean? Okay. See, I, I have parents, for instance, back in my day, I used to tell people I wanted to be a professional football player. All right. And I had teachers tell me, you can never do that. You're no good. Or, or you know, nobody becomes a professional football player. And I was, I was in eighth grade, Mr. Georges and Mr. Thurgood, he was British, both English teachers. And I loved them both because they were both the theater directors and I was in theater and so forth. Anyway, I want to be a pro, pro football player. And they did everything in their power to talk me out of it. I'm in eighth grade, right? I ended up going on playing football, division one football, NCAA, all that crap, but didn't play pro football. But back then you talk kids out of it. That's what adults would do, right? But then my son, he's in high school. He wants to, he says, Papa, I want to spend my life in sports. All right. Now, if it had been the seventies, parents would have said, a lot of parents, not mine, but a lot of parents would have said, I got to tell my kid what's right. So few kids make it in sports. That's just dumb. That's, that's just dumb. Don't waste your time. You need to get a job. You need to, da, 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 da. that's not, that's just wrong thinking. So the parents thought they were right by telling the kid, uh, you know, you'll never play pro football. They thought they were right. Well, the truth is plenty of people actually do play pro football. In fact, one of my classmates played pro football, used to block for John Elway on the Broncos and a few other teams. All right. But that's not even the point. My son wanted to go into sports, Right. Do you know how many millions of careers there are in sports in all different fields from agent to field grounds to sales to front office, back office, that, 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 that. a million careers. He just wanted to be in sports. I said, fucking go for it. So what's right when your kid says they want to play in a band and you know they're playing their guitar? Well, you'll never make a career in that. How the fuck do you know? Furthermore, what if I get into playing in a band and I discover I actually like you know the producing side more being behind the mixing board and I actually have a gift for it? 
or I get into playing, you know, my guitar and then I start hanging around theater folks and I end up being, you know, getting into theater or I enjoy, you know, being a makeup artist in theater and you really get turned on to that. You don't know. One door leads to the next door, but you'll never see that second door if you don't have the courage to go through the first door. So when you say, how do I, how do you differentiate between accepting your kids as they are and telling them what is right? I guess the question I'm left asking is when you're saying what is right, what do you mean? They know the law and not the law, or is it your version of reality that you're saying in terms of what is right? Because I don't know, I, I'm just gonna give you my short answer. Tell the kids to be who the fuck they are. They don't get to hurt people. They don't get to take advantage of people or be mean, but go be your fucking weird ass self. I went about 20 years, two decades plus, of working lots of part-time jobs. I was a pastor and I was an NCAA strength coach, but uh, those didn't fully fit. And so I worked a lot of odd jobs for years while writing my books and building my counseling career and so forth. And people said I was crazy. People said, what the hell? My own father looked at me sideways. He still supported me. But when I gave away all my life possessions and drained my bank account to go and minister to the homeless on the streets of Oakland, California for two and a half years, and I lived among them. I slept on concrete every night for two and a half years. There are a whole lot of people that would say, well, that's not right. <laughs> Says who? Says who? I'm still paying my bills. You know, when my ex-wife and I were divorced, I always paid my child support. One year I even paid double because the year before had been a really tight year, right? Who determines what's right? I'm just, I'm just a big fan of supporting kids because the most interesting people and often the, the, the happiest people, more often than not, the happiest people are the ones that just know they're loved and accepted. And my parents, as I said, with my own parents, raised six kids by accepting us. And I was the hardest one to accept. I'm sure of that. I had one other brother. He was pretty intense and I love him to death, but uh, he, he might've been a, a bit of a challenge too, but or each kid is in their own way, but just love them. Why? Because then they trust you. They come back to you and they'll find their way. They'll find their way. Next question. How do you deal with toxic family who don't talk about or acknowledge anything they do? I'm assuming you mean they don't talk about the shit they do to hurt each other or whatever. How do you deal with that? If I told you that you didn't have to act on it, that I just want to know the answer just for conversation's sake, how would you answer the question, what do you want to do? You say, how do you deal with toxic family? I'm betting there's a part of you that wants to just fucking back off and not have any more interaction with them or radically reduce that interaction. And I'm not saying you should. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just asking the question, what do you want? Identify that first. All right, let's just start from there. And then my question would be, and, and let's just play with the idea that you actually want to back away. And I'm guessing you do. I'm guessing somewhere in you, some percentage of you, whether it's 20% or 80%, some percentage of you wants to back away from your dysfunctional family, your toxic family. So then my question becomes, well, why aren't you then? If that's what party wants or a significant party you wants. And toxicity, the, the worse the pain gets, the more likely we are to change. You guys have heard me say it a million times, change will not occur until the pain gets bad enough. And what I'm saying is, so I'm betting your pain has gotten pretty bad and yet you haven't acted yet because you, you're basically stating, I don't know what to do. But I bet a big part of you just wants to get the fuck out, right? But the fact that you're not getting the fuck out says there's a fear. You guys have heard me say it before. If you're ever trying to find, figure out why someone is doing something that doesn't make sense, always ask yourself the question, what's the primary fear driving the behavior? Then speculate the answers, all right? And go with the biggest, hairiest, scariest one. And it's likely that. So in this case, 
the question is, what's the fear of driving the behavior? If, in fact, you want to pull away from your family, and I'll bet a significant portion of you, inside of you, really wants to just because it's sucking the fucking life out of you, and nobody is owning their shit, and it's really this toxic shithole, which is sad for a family to be, but you're realizing that's what it's become. I'm betting you have a giant fear, and I bet the fear is that you'll eat their shit even more, right? They'll criticize you even more, right? And you fear having to be criticized by them right? You fear them hectoring you or, you know, continuing to call or text or come over to your house or whatever it might be. You fear that. And so what I, basically what you have to do, if it is in fact that you want to get away from your toxic family and create more space, even if it's not cutting them off entirely, what you have to do is come to terms with your own fears. What you have to do is flush out, begin to write out, journal out, and even uh, write a letter. But to begin to flush out of you what your fears are, identify what your fears are, because that's what's inhibiting you from your real feelings. And so it's flushing out the pain, the fears, and all that's going on inside of you. And you guys have heard me say it a million times before, but I recommend writing a letter to your family or to certain members. And you know what? That actually raised another question. And that is, who above all else do you most fear in your family coming under their wrath that if you were to do what you actually want to do, whether it's checking out of the family or standing up and saying, hey, let's stop this shit entirely. Whose wrath do you most fear? Whose criticism do you most fear? Whose disappointment do you most fear? And what is the one sentence you most fear them saying to you or thinking about you? Those two questions and those two answers are really what's keeping you stuck. You fear someone most and you fear some sentence most. And once you can come to terms with that and answer the next question, that is, and answer the next question in the affirmative, then you can finally do what you want to do. And the next question is simply this. If that person whose criticism you most fear said that sentence that you most fear, would you be okay? Because so often when we overthink shit, overthinkers know all about this, or when we think about our fears or when we live in this state of stuckness, it's because we're thinking about some eventuality that we fear so much because we believe if that eventuality happens, I won't be okay. When you ask the question, how do I deal with toxic family who don't talk about or acknowledge anything they do? You deal with it by asking yourself what you most want to do, identifying the fears that are uh, keeping you from doing it, and then also gaming out what is the worst case scenario if you were to stand up for yourself and will you be okay? And then it's also looking at who you're most afraid of and what you're most afraid of them saying or thinking about you. Those are all going to be tools. And if you go through and actually do that work, your path will become much clearer and your strength will become much greater. All right, I'm going to take about one more question here. All right, what have we got, fine people? How can I get my husband to open up? Uh, short answer is uh, you can't, but that's not completely true, okay? I'm guessing that your husband not opening up is either a new thing uh, and, and that is to say something that wasn't present at the beginning of the relationship, uh, such that it's come about in the last month, year, 10 years, whatever. How long has your husband not been opening up? It's either been some shift from what he once was so that he opened up before, and then at some point in the relationship, your husband stopped opening up. Or you've only come to realize recently, shit, my husband has never really opened up. I had a a good buddy of mine tell me recently that uh, one of our mutual friends uh, from grade school, they've stayed in touch. And he said, you know, Sven, every time I talk, I'll just call her Susie. Every time I talk to Susie, it's only recently hit me. She never really shares anything about herself. We're always talking about this or that or, you know, whatever in the world. And, and that's cool and everything, but she never opens up about herself. But it, 
And I said, yeah, but I'm, I'm just gonna call him Tim. Yeah, but Tim, you've known Susie. You've known Susie for 50 years. He says, yeah, it just never hit me till now. She never opens up about herself. So in this question, how can I get my husband to open up? My first question would be, is this a new phenomenon? In other words, was it different in the beginning of the relationship or has it always been this way? And the reason I ask that question is because that indicates a shift inside of you. And I'd be curious to know what, if, if it's been there the whole time and you're only seeing it now, I would want to know what's happened inside of you that caused you to see it, caused you to feel it. Because it's hard to connect to someone when they don't open up. And so that would seem to indicate that I've only recently now realized how disconnected I feel from my husband or how I want more love or how we just, there's no sort of emotional connection. There's no feeling, there's no affect. And so if it's been there the whole time and I'm only recently realizing it, then it's interesting that your pain has taken this long for you to finally realize that. And so that belies a deeper truth inside of you. What's really going on inside of you that you're only seeing it now? But if this is a somewhat new phenomenon, that implies that something happened inside of your husband that caused him to go from previously opening up to now no longer opening up. Well, then the way to crack that nut is to ask yourself the question, when did it happen? When is such a powerful question? Because it helps us identify the what. So when did your husband shift from being an open person to no longer opening up? When? Was it two years ago? Was it eight and a half years ago? Why? Oh, you say it was 10 years ago? Well, why wasn't it eight years ago? Or why wasn't it 14 years? Oh, because 10 years ago is when blah, blah, blah happened. Ah, there we go. So something happened in your husband that caused him to stop opening up. Now, if by some chance you would uh, feel comfortable talking about that with your husband and asking him, hey, was it sort of around this time that you changed? Would you feel, I mean, are these conversations you can even have with your husband and talking about what's going on inside of him? But the mere fact that you're saying, well, how do I get him to open up indicates you probably can't have these conversations with your husband, right? That even if you could identify what the original pain source was or what caused the original shift or or even if you could identify how you're feeling, which I'm guessing you already have for him, I, this doesn't feel good. Will you please open up? I'm guessing you've said it a hundred times, thousand times and nothing changes. So how do you get him to open up? In truth, you can't. This goes back to my original answer. Until someone's ready to open up, and unless they want to open up, they're not going to. You ask any therapist on God's green earth, ask any psychologist, ask any pastor, priest, ask any you know social worker, anyone working with people, if they don't want to open up, if that person doesn't want to open up, they ain't going to open up, right? Remember that scene from Goodwill Hunting, you know, and they're both in the basement counseling office. It's uh, Sean, you know, played by Robin Williams, the immortal Robin Williams, and the kid doesn't want to open up, doesn't want to open up. And Sean just sits there. Fuck, I don't care. You don't want to open up, don't want up. But he had to keep coming back for counseling because it was required by the court. And it, what, that, it, what that shows so clearly, and any therapist or any pastor, anyone working with other people knows, until that person wants to open up, you ain't going to accomplish shit. And until your husband wants to open up, you ain't going to accomplish shit. So you have a couple of tacks. You can just keep on loving on him, keep loving on him, keep loving on him, and hope he changes. Or at some point, you need to begin to say, at what point do I get sick of this? At what point do I need to more better tend my own needs? And are we reaching the point where I need to walk away? And then you've got to process all of your own feelings on that. All right, fine people. This has been lovely. Thank you for tuning in to the lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. All is right in the world. And wherever you are checking in from, be it Adelaide or Abilene or someplace in the UK that starts with the letter A or from Zimbabwe in Africa also starts with an A. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to another lightning round episode of the Badass Counseling Show. On behalf of my dear friends and producers, Rob and Casey, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.